Welcome to the Irishman, Englishman and Scotsman football podcast. Hello and welcome to another interview from the Irishman, Englishman and Scotsman football podcast. I'm Fino, the resident Scotsman of the group, and I'm joined today by a Scotland internationalist who was a member of the national team the last time we got to a major tournament and a Celtic treble winning goalkeeper, if I remember correctly, Jonathan Gould. Good morning stroke evening, I'll say. <laughs> How are you getting on? Yeah, very good, thank you. Good, good. So Scottish internationalist, Celtic, uh, Coventry, Preston goalkeeper, as well as a keeping coach down south, but you mentioned there kind of good morning. You're now over in New Zealand. What's taking you over to, to that side of the world? I moved out here um, primarily in 1988-89 and uh, came and played out with a lad called uh, Brian McAllister, who also played for Scotland as a, as a left-back. And we were on an exchange between Wimbledon and the club Napier City Rovers over here. Um, my father was manager at Wimbledon at the time, thought it was good for two youngsters to go and uh, see the world. And um, yeah, we came out. And we won the we won the national league for the first time in the club's history, um, and we were part of that group. And I, just, you know, it just left an indelible mark on me as a person. The country did, and and I always had a, a dream of coming back. So um, we came back in two thousand and five when I kind of semi retired from playing, um, and then had another uh, stint back in England from two fifteen through to two twenty. Nice, nice. Yeah, it's definitely a nice part of the world. Um, you mentioned there that your Wimbledon days, um, growing up kind of the son of a football player and manager and Bobby Gould. Um, so you've grown up around professional football, I assume kind of the majority of your life. Yeah. Was there ever any question as to whether or not you would become a, a, a footballer or was it always the plan? Uh, no, it was never part of the plan. Um, it was probably a plan that my father uh, discouraged. Um, I'm not sure why at the time. I, you know, I used to come home from from his training and he, I'd, I'd spend most of my time in the back garden uh, being either him or a guy called uh, Jimmy Greenoff who used to play for Manchester United um, he was one of my heroes and and my father you know he encouraged my education so I ended up going to um, grammar school in Bristol for a couple of years well no for seven years actually and then came out of there and went directly to work for Barclays Bank on an accelerated management program Definitely not the the chosen career path, I suppose, as <laughs> as most footballers. So, no. but your dad was a striker, correct? And, yeah. And yet you ended up being a, a goalkeeper. So, what was it that made you, you know, go to the other end of the pitch? I don't know. I, I well, oh, I do know. My dad didn't think I was quick enough. He didn't think I could run fast enough to play outfield. Um, so, up to the age of um, it was up to the age of twenty, I'd been an outfield player. Um, I'd even played for Bristol Rovers Reserves. Um, I was offered a contract by Newport County as a centre-back. Um, and I saw myself as a striker, but I, I, I genuinely didn't have any pace. Dad just thought, the only chance you've got, you've got good coordination, you've got good hand-eye hand, hand eye, um, ball um, coordination, so try goalkeeping and literally started at the age of 20. Crazy, <laughs> crazy. Look, I don't want to skip too much of your career. Obviously, you played for some big teams with strong fan bases and uh, down in England. Like yeah. you played in the Premier League with Coventry, West Brom. You helped Bradford um, get into what is now the Championship. Yeah. But being a Scotsman, is it is it safe to say that the move to Celtic um, came at kind of the right time in your career and arguably potentially the the biggest catalyst in your career? Yeah, the right time. Um, I was probably on the verge of thinking about finding another way to make a living. I had two young children. I was playing for Bradford, but I wasn't playing for Bradford. 
I was wasn't even third choice. Well, I was just third choice at the time. Um, and I, I I rang about three or four clubs in leagues below, offered my services because Chris Kamara at the time had, had told me I could have a free transfer. So for the Celtic opportunity to come up was it was something that dreams are made of really and and probably well like you said um went back to the fact that I played in the Premier League and I had a, an element of experience that I think Celtic were looking for even if they thought I was probably a, a short stop at that moment. Celtic at that time had two you know very capable goalkeepers as well and obviously there was there was I think an injury crisis there and and that accelerated probably the need but it was it was uh, Wim Janssen that, that was the manager that brought you in, correct? And and he was working into, to, I think it was Jock Brown. Yeah. How did that kind of all come about? Was it was it Jock that gave you the phone call? Was it was it the manager that spoke to you and wanted you to come up? How did that all kind of come about? Well, I had an agent at the time and he rang me up and said, oh, Celtic are looking for a goalkeeper. I've thrown your name in the hat. And I said, fantastic. I then, that morning I rang my dad and I said, dad, do you know anybody within Celtic that might be able to help with this move. So he rang Jock Brown. They had a direct line in through Craig Brown. Um, Craig and my dad were international managers at the time. And I then got a phone call from my dad saying, keep your phone on you while you're training, which was, you know, in those days, they were quite big mobiles. They weren't um, little indiscreet things you could stick in your pocket. So I had to tell the uh, reserve team manager that I was keeping my phone on me. I couldn't tell him why. But the phone did go and it was Jock Brown. And he just, he said, he said, I've got one question. Can you play in an old firm game? And I said, absolutely. I said, I can cope with that. I said, uh, you know, not quite as big, but I played in Coventry Aston Villa, which is a big derby down in the UK. You know, you get 50,000 people at, at, at Villa. So uh, why not? And, and from that point forward, it was it was mesmeric, really. I, I, I left training. I got in my car. I told the manager that I was leaving. He couldn't believe that I was going to Celtic. In a good way or a bad way? Uh, um, probably, you know, he, he didn't have to stick by his word. And, and what you had, you probably might not be aware of is that it was actually the international deadline. So I had to get from Bradford to Glasgow in a Fiat Uno by five o'clock in the afternoon. And it was currently 11 o'clock. Now, there, there, there was a pretty good chance this Fiat Uno wasn't going to make it up through the ranges. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I did. Um, and then and then the, the link became even more clear because... Um, Murdo McLeod was at the club and, and he'd been involved with the Scotland squad when like first up got called up in 1993 um, as, a, as a goalkeeper. So it all started to make sense. Uh, the, the one thing that did stick out at the end, I, I said to um, uh, Jock Brown, I said, I said, so did you speak to my agent? And he went, what are you talking about? And I said, well, my agent rang me and said that you, there was an interest. And, and he said, and I said, well, who's your agent? And I told it was Murdo McKay. And he said, no, no. He said, Murdo put Brian Gunn in there. Just as well, you gave it a ring. Yeah, just as well, I got my dad to call him. Just as well, Murdo wasn't in that room at the time doing any kind of deal for me because um, I wouldn't have uh, spoke highly of him. <laughs> <laughs> you, you spoke about kind of being able to play in an old firm game. And obviously, you know, it's it's one of those games that's yeah. known the world over up there with, you know, El Clasico, Boca River Plate for the fervour and passion. Yeah. There's a lot that's been said about the goldfish bowl that is Glasgow. Um, and a lot written about it. Did anyone give you any warnings? How was it settling into life at Celtic? The, the easiest part was settling into the dressing room because at the time we, um, we had a relatively new bunch of players. You know, Tommy Burns had, had recruited some really good, strong characters. Um, and then Vim added some flair, should I say, to the group, um, specifically in Henrik. And, and I think um, 
that that was easy. I I, I didn't ha- I had no idea what I was coming into, um, in respect of the old firm and that goldfish bowl. Uh, but you had to learn very very quickly. Um, you know certain behaviours, uh, certain attitudes towards you. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you you you. I used to stay at the Stackers Hotel in East Kilbride, um, and. You, you you do something as silly as go into the steam room and you knew straight away whether there was a Rangers or support uh, or Celtic support in there. The Rangers support would not speak to you. And then the Celtic support would tell you his life history. Um, so it was pretty clear even at that point, uh, the, the dynamic and, and the nature of, yeah, the inhospitable nature of, of old firm. And what is it like to be stood in a cauldron, you know, both Ibrox and Parkhead are, you know, phenomenal stadia. Yeah. What is it like to be stood on the pitch with fifty to sixty thousand people screaming for ninety minutes? <laughs> it's great. It's, it's it's what it's what you play for. It's what you dream of, and I th- I think it's it's how you test yourself as a character whether you can cope with those situations. I've got, I've got no doubt that you know I, I believe I cope with. Um, most of them, those old firm games. I think there was one particularly that I didn't cope quite so well with when we got beat 4-0 at Ibrox and didn't play so well. Um, but I knew that I didn't cope with it uh, mentally either, that that one in particular. All the other ones, I think it was about 14 or 15. I was quite pleased with how I went about my personal business. I mean, that's that's 100%. It's, it's almost 90% mental when it comes to those games rather than, you know, being able to, to execute on the on the pitch. And you kind of alluded to it there that you arrived at Celtic at a time where I think it's fair to say there'd been a fair bit of upheaval, you know, a lot of outgoings and ingoings. You arrived the same summer as a certain Swedish striker, like you said, in Larsen. Rangers had obviously won considerable silverware over the last nine years and they were going for for their 10 in a row. Did you get the feeling from the very beginning of that season, though, that, that this team had the makings of maybe something special? Yeah, as a group. And I, th- I think um, what helped us was the CIS Cup was actually played really early in that season. And so I think by November, we'd won the first trophy of that season. And that gave us a huge amount of confidence. And then I think post that, it was probably the New Year's Day games. Um, that was that was a huge result. And I, I just think... Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was funny because I thought we had some really strong characters but we had strong characters who were really good football players as well and that doesn't always come um, hand in hand and you know I think we also had a smattering of players that had been at the club a reasonable amount of time that helped us become that group you know Tommy Boyd classic example Tosh McKinley you know they sort of uh, they're part of the fabric of Celtic and massive Celtic supporters themselves and you know then we had the youngsters of uh, at the time of Simon Donnelly and and Jackie McNamara, um, you know, you, you put into that, you know, Craig Burley, who'd come out of the Premier League, Alan Stubbs, Tommy Johnson, you know, Enrico Anoni. You know, there's a list there. You know, even um, Andreas Tom, I think he, he left us later in the year. But, it, you know, there's, there were some big name players at the football club. Definitely. And I think you're, you're doing yourself a bit of a disservice there because obviously your, your performances that season, I think you averaged a, a clean sheet every other game, basically. What was the atmosphere in that dressing room like? You obviously did have some really strong characters, but with the pressure of all the outside influence around, you know, Rangers going for 10 in a row, was that something that, you know, the players were quite consistently 
discussing or aware of or was it just something that was you know one game at a time focus on the three points and we'll see where we are come April May time well we we, we had a few issues right at the start I think there was we were on the verge of going through the first three games without winning um, and then we we turned that around against St Johnston and I think also we were socially quite quite a group and uh and when we won, um, we partied hard as well. Um, and, and I think even even if we had a, a, quite a number of uh, Swedes, Danes, Dutch in there. They used to have what what they called a schmoggle boggle. <laughs> so every Sunday when we weren't playing, they'd go around to, it was usually Mark Reaper's house. Um, they'd go around to Mark Reaper's house and drink their schnapps and, and have a real good time. Anyway, there was there was us English and Scots. We were saying, "Well, what is what's this schmoggle all about, really?" And we started getting involved, and then they ended up in uh, pretty heavy Saturday Sunday sessions. Only when we'd won, it was at no other time. If we got beat, we didn't we didn't dare show our faces. So I, th- I think that's that was a big part of the group as well. And uh, you know that nowadays, uh, would you be allowed to bond in that way? No chance. No, I think you saw it with with both Rangers and Celtic throughout the nineties. The team that drinks together wins together, and there's, I think, legendary stories on both sides of of that divide. Um, looking at your career at Celtic as a whole, though, you played for, I think it was four managers in your your first four seasons, essentially with Janssen, uh, Vengloss, uh, Barnes, and O'Neill. Five, even. And he was interim as well, wasn't he? Oh well, of course, yeah. <laughs> four permanent managers, but but how yeah. difficult was that kind of constant change for you as a goalkeeper? Is it yeah. is it something that's potentially easier for you as a goalkeeper compared to maybe you know a Jackie McNamara or a Tosh McKinley at fullback, where the systems might be radically different? Mm, okay, yeah, I take I take your point in in, rest, in reference to that, but I think it's difficult for any player when a new manager comes in. You have to um, you've got to earn their respect. Um, just like you do when you go into a dressing room. Um, and, and also, when a, when a manager signs you, as Vim did, um, straight away there's, there's kind of a, um, an element of loyalty from that manager. He, want, he wants to see you do well. When a, when a manager comes in, um, he might not always see you the same way. He might have already had that. No, and I don't think this was the case with um, Joseph. I don't think he had any preconceived ideas and, and hit one of his first kind of comments in the in the group was you know, I you know I respect what you've done last season and I want to help you um this season he was he was fabulous like that of of the people that could have come in uh, as a person Joseph was perfect and, and I, I felt as if we let him down a little bit um I think when when John Barnes came in he knew me from the UK whether he thought I was good enough I'm not sure um and I probably got the vibe of that and that that creates um always creates um, instability in your own mind. And I had a couple of contract issues where I, I wanted to sign longer term contracts and it was going between um, him and, and I can't remember the guy, I think it was a guy called Jim that was doing the contracts, but it got quite frustrating. And, and, and when things like that don't happen smoothly, I think that creates doubt. Um, I, I think when Kenny took over, he did really well to stabilize it and made things very, very simple. And obviously we won a trophy that year. And then, you know, the Martin walks in the door and he knows how to run a football club. And he he came in and he I, he definitely had preconceived ideas, but he still gave you opportunities to, to prove um, him uh, either wrong or right. 
it's interesting because um, you were talking there about contractual discussions and things like that. We were talking on the podcast recently that, you know, as football fans, we know 1% of what goes on at a football club. You know, there's so many different elements that go into a successful football team or a not so successful football team. It could be from week to week. Yeah, you're having a contract discussion and that's taking up your, your mental energy and it, it just can then impact on the on the field. But fans obviously like to just assume that, that players are robots and can do everything as quickly and as perfectly as, as possible. Yeah. Now, we talk about Scottish football during that period in the in the late 90s and early 2000s. We had you know, Champions League winners in, in Stefan Kloss, Paul Lambert, Premier yeah. League winners. Um, of course, Larson and Van Bronckhorst both went on to win the Champions League with, with Barcelona. And then you look at Hearts and, and Aberdeen. I mean, Hearts, that, that 98 side that won the Scottish Cup, had Neil McCann, John Robertson and uh, Thomas Flugel, which is a, a shout out for our Austrian listeners. <laughs> Do you feel like the, the late 90s, early 2000s, is the is the golden era of modern Scottish football? I think at the time, yes. Now, yes, I think the transfer fees that were paid at that time, 100% when you think, um, you know, the, the amount of money that was being spent, I don't know if it gets spent. Well, it doesn't. It hasn't been spent at Celtic for a long, long time like that. Uh, I think it was the start of some of the TV deals as well. I think that, you know, like you said, that the supporters prior to Rangers going out of the league uh, the grounds were, you know, even away games that we went to were full. Um, so I, th- I think it was it was a very strong time in the game in Scotland, and that's probably the reason why uh, we qualified for national tournaments. You know, as a as a country, because you, you to to play in the Celtic or Rangers team, you had to be a very very good player. And then you've got like the likes of Hearts and Aberdeen. I remember Aberdeen must have had two or three players that went to the 98 World Cup. You know, there were some strong teams that had, had probably um, invested then in, in local Scottish players. Yeah, I, yeah I, I probably agree with, with your statement looking back. I don't quite know where money's gone and why, but I, I, I would say at that point that, you know, the fact that, you know, Celtic obviously went on in 2003 to go to the, to the final in Europe. Um, and you look at that squad and what Martin O'Neill built and how much he spent. It was, a, it was, a, and it was a great time. Great players. Now I won't touch on it too much, but I think it'd be remiss of me not to to talk about what's going on currently in the Scottish League because I think parallels can can obviously be drawn with with the current season in Scotland and and your first season with Celtic. Of course, the the shoes on the other foot. Yeah. When when your team cracked that period of dominance from from a Rangers side yeah. was it more of a feeling of relief that you you'd managed to stop it or was it just sheer pride in the in the achievement no it was relief um and I think usually usually when you win a title and I can remember that I can remember those few moments when the final whistle went against St Johnston usually when you win a title like that it's euphoric and it and it wasn't on this occasion because everything had built up during that season and even you know, coming out of the Dunfermline game that we should have probably taken the league out then, the pressure was immense. Rangers, and I, I must admit, I looked at the squad that he was building at the start of this season and I worried uh, because I looked at the recruitment um, that I saw being done at Cybrox. You know, the boy um, Aribo took out from Shelton. You know, we, was, we were playing against him a couple of years ago at Preston and and um, he was a stand-up player. Um, I just wanted to bring a team together that would 
outpower Celtic on the day. And and that's something quite rare, has been quite rare of late. A hundred percent. And and obviously, you know, going into next season, there, there's going to be quite a big regime change, obviously with change in, in leadership mm. off the pitch as well as, as the, the coaching staff. Of course, the fans will demand results as always, as both sides of the old firm yeah. tend to do so. How realistic is it to expect that instant fight back to take the to take the Premiership crown back from from a Rangers team that has been both you know dominant in the league and played well in Europe this yeah. season? Wholly uh, realistic. Um, I I I think a key element of that will be how quickly the the the, the club managed to recruit a manager. I think it needs to be done sooner than later. I think it needs to be in there now, to be perfectly frank, to be able to assess the squad. Um, and again, if it's an experienced manager, um, he'll be able to do that very, very quickly. And then I think he, you know, the strategy then probably from the board, you know, he'll need to know what his budget is. All, all of the stuff that we know goes on in football. But I think he's then got to go and operate in his own space um, as as the head coach in the way that, you know, the successful managers down the years at Celtic have done. Um you know, you look at Brendan and Brendan's Brendan had a style of football that he he even at Liverpool in the time he was there, he managed to implement that very, very quickly. And he's he's done that in a modified way at Leicester. So that's where I think the, the appointment of a very, very shrewd um and experienced manager is is a crucial part of that that fight back. So I'll I'll park Celtic for the moment. Um of course with with that outstanding season that you had in in 97, 98, you were called up to the, the Scotland squad for the World Cup, which unfortunately until this summer has been Scotland's last major tournament, but we'll, we'll rectify that this summer. Um, of course, you were called up replacing Andy Gorham prior to the tournament. What was it like getting that call to say that you'd made Craig Brown's squad? Well, I was really disappointed in the first instance because <laughs> I felt uh, my form had warranted um, selection. But then when you consider you had Andy Gorham Jim Layton and uh, Neil Sullivan, um, I could understand why. So I, I'd actually been on a three-day bender in uh, Jersey with the Celtic Supports Club over there before I got the telephone call. Um, and and I, I could try to think who it was that phoned me again. Um, anyway, I think it might have been Jock again that phoned me, and then I spoke to Craig. Um, but they were out in Washington um, playing, pre, uh, playing sort of pre-World Cup friendly. So I, I literally got on an aeroplane um, flew to Washington and, and was was straight amongst it. Um, it was a great feeling. It was very, a very, very proud moment. I didn't think I'd ever get chased by um, news reporters through Heathrow Airport at the time because it was quite sensational news for in respect of Andy Gorham uh, and, and his uh, decision not to go. Um, but, you know, when I look back on that, it's probably one of the pinnacles of, of my career to be involved in a, in a World Cup and and um, you know to to open it against Brazil like we did, and we we by no means by no means disgraced ourselves. Could have snuck a draw, whether we deserved it or not, I'm not sure. But um, it was a great tournament. I, I've got to tell you a story though. One of the funniest things, and, and I don't tell it as well as Jackie McNamara does, okay, because he tells this brilliantly. But we were we were stood in the tunnel um, just before we went out against uh, Brazil, and we were all lined up on the one side and all the Brazil boys were lined up on the other and they were all holding hands. And so they, they looked amazing. These guys, they had the Brazil kit on traditional colors. They're all tanned. They look amazing. And we were there in our Scotland squat strip, little white legs hanging out. Craig Brown comes around the corners and he just stopped in his tracks and he turned around to us and he looked at them and he went, look at them lads. 
they are shiting themselves. <laughs> well, I was thinking, well, I don't think they are. So, you know. I mean, it's such a, a phenomenal occasion, I suppose, to open up a World Cup. And, and obviously you guys, you know, got, got kilted out for, for the occasion. What was that team like off the pitch? Was Were they all quite pally? I mean, there was obviously quite a strong Celtic contingent in that in that World Cup squad. Was it, yeah. was it quite cohesive yeah. or were there different groups? How did that all play out? Yeah, no, very cohesive. Very like you said, I think there was, might have been seven or eight Celtic boys in there. Um, there were the lads from the Premier League. You know, you had big Colin Hendry was was leading us. Uh, Kevin Gallagher, Johnny Collins, previously obviously Celtic. Um, Rangers boys were in there. Um, I think I think we missed Gary Mack, McAllister, because I think he, he'd uh, injured himself prior, but he came with the group. Um, the, the real cool thing was that Craig also involved about four young lads that had come out of the under-20s. They were there to help us with the kit and also train. Um, one of them was Paul Gallagher. I think he went on to play for Scotland anyway. And I remember Kieran McInesby. Um, you know, so I th- it was a- Craig. Craig knew how to bring a group together. Um, was probably his style of management was was to make sure the environment was was a good one. And you know, he he was obviously viewed as um, you know he's, he's quite comedic, uh, Craig, in his in the way he, uh, he deals with people. But at the same time, his, his detail was was super. And and I think we we enjoyed it. We were you know we were devastated to go out. Probably the Morocco result three now really hurt us. Um, but, you know, I thought we equipped ourselves pretty well against Brazil and Norway. Obviously, Scotland now has their their next major tournament to look forward to, thanks to, to David Marshall's heroics <laughs> in, in Serbia. How do you think that Scotland will will fare? Do you think that they've got a chance of qualifying? Um, obviously, we're going up against England, Croatia, Czech Republic, all three, you know, strong national sides. Um, do you think, wh- how do you think we're, we're going to get on? Is that who we've drawn? I must have I must have missed something in COVID. So say again. England, Croatia, and Czech Republic. Oh dear. <laughs> well, that'll be a challenge, I think. Look at the way that uh, we qualified and the spirit that that would have produced. We were expected to probably be a not a whipping dog, but we won't be expected to win those games. Back to to your club career. You know, all good things have to come to an end, and, yeah. and you left Celtic, I think, in the January of of two thousand three when you moved to Preston. Was it tough to leave Celtic in search of you know first team football, or at that time were you just kind of laser focused on, on getting game time? I think um, at the time, I felt it was a really good opportunity, and again, the way Martin O'Neill dealt dealt with me. Um, because I'd spent, you know, you spend what, over five and a half years at a football club. It's it's part of your, it's part of your blood, and you love the place. But I think I was, yeah, I, I felt as if I had to play, um, just to finish my career off in some way uh, at the age of thirty-five. And you know, to, to again, you go back to Craig Brown bringing me into into Preston and showing that faith as a manager can, and it, it kind of gave me a, um, a, a football lifeline, I think, for another couple of years two and a half years and that that, that in, I ended up getting back in the Scotland squad on the back of my form at, at Preston North End but when you went about six months later I can remember turning around to my wife and saying I've just left one of the biggest clubs in the world and although from a playing perspective it was the right thing from uh yeah from a heartstrings perspective it probably 
you know, it wasn't. I always, I, I dream of being back there all the time, mate, all the time. <laughs> and of course, a few years later, you then returned to Deepdale to join Alex Neal's backroom, backroom staff. Yeah. What was it like going back to a, a club that you'd played for, but this time in a coaching role? Yeah, well, because I had a good time there, it was an easy step. There wasn't a huge amount of change, but um, it's a it's a tremendously well-run football club. Um, the owners um, always backed it, uh, Mr. Hemmings, um, well-run by Mr. Ridsdale. And then, and I was intrigued at the time. I really was to go and work with Alex. I'd come across him on the on the bench as an opposition coach, and he's 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 a feisty fellow, and uh, he'd had tremendous time at Hamilton and Norwich. And I walked in and it was it was a tremendous um, learning experience for me. And I really enjoyed uh, the, the way that Alex worked and, and his detail. Um, again, he had a good backroom staff. Um, uh, Frank, Frankie um, McAvoy was there. That He was his number two at Hamilton and I called Stevie Thompson. So, um, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and but for the, the fact that COVID had struck in and, and my daughter had come over to New Zealand for a period of time. I, I would have probably still been there, to be honest. And and always, you know, family comes first in, in those situations, I suppose. Was coaching always something that you'd, you'd been interested in doing once your playing career had come to a conclusion? Uh, yeah, it was, but I, I, I didn't really have an agenda around it. So I kind of fell into it in New Zealand when I came out in 2005 and ended up head coach uh, for a, a, Premier, a New Zealand Premier League team out here for four years. Um, and then I ended up in the A-League as um, a specialist goalkeeping coach. Every job I've, I've taken from there, you know, even, even the one where I went to Perth, I got a phone call at 12 o'clock one night and I was back in New Zealand and Ian Ferguson was on the telephone. Um, obviously an adversary of mine, you know, during the time at, at uh, Celtic. And he offered me a job, which was, it, it was incredible, really, to, to get that kind of offer. But it showed a level of respect from him and the fact that I was keen to work for, for Ian, um, you know, in return, you know, knew what a winner he'd been in that time at, at, that he had at Rangers. And, and again, had a fantastic 12 months with him. We got to the grand final with Perth Glory, uh, missed out um, to a late penalty. But you've got to go on your little journeys in coaching. And, uh, I, you know, that my experience that I managed to get through Tony Pulis at West Brom in the Premier League for three years has stood me in such good stead. You learn from good people that know how to set football teams up and know how to, to lead football clubs and players and it's it's magnificent experiences and I think that's why even now I've got no agenda going forward um, I think I might like a little tap at management management again myself somewhere um, and even if that meant started in Scotland but somewhere at um, you know in League One or League Two I think I'd be prepared to, to do that to, to um, again earn, earn the right to, to manage at a high level. Definitely. I think uh, one of my questions was actually going to be about Ian Ferguson and, and I think Stuart Monroe was also maybe there. Yeah. Um, was there was there a bit of back and forth um, in terms of the Rangers and Celtic thing or was it all quite respectful? <laughs> Daily. Daily. <laughs> Daily, mate. Um, but it was, again, you, you, you know, you get three characters and there's another lad called Ian Gillen who was actually a Celtic and stroke Aberdeen supporter. So there was four Scots in this in this uh, environment, and we also signed um, a couple. Uh, we had Liam Liam Miller that we'd signed as well, who's obviously been at Celtic. Um, so it, it was it was it was vibrant, 
and it was enthusiastic and and that's why it was a successful environment in the end now new zealand is home for you these days and what is it like to be involved in in football in places like australia and new zealand where it isn't the primary sport compared to a rugby union have you seen growth in participation or the skill levels over the years yeah i have and that was quite a poignant moment when i came back after having been away for for just short six years the first thing i noticed when i went and watched um, the young lads in the region i play was the skill level had, had, had been elevated and what happened about six or seven years ago like called john herdman who's now um head coach of the canadian national men's team and and i believe has offered the the women's England's national coach job. He set up what he called the whole of football plan, um, and it's taken it's taken a bit of time. But I could see the the fruition of that um, when I when I watched this training session. I, th- I think there's a lot more young Kiwi players turning pro. Um, you know, the latest example that's been successful and and will break into the Bayern team is Sarpreet Singh. He came out of nowhere from the Phoenix. Uh, we've got like a Ryan Thomas, who's at uh, PSV. You know, th- there are some real, really good uh, football players in this country. I still believe it's an untapped market as well. Definitely. And I think you've, you've got players like Winston Reid, who, who really blazed the trail in, in being a New Zealand's elite level footballer. Yeah. Now, what does the, the future hold for, for you in terms of coaching? You've, yeah. you've alluded to it there. What, what are your current, you know, your short-term goals um, as, you're, as you head back into New Zealand football? Yeah, well, I, I'm lucky enough they've asked me to help with the, the goalkeeping development and education keepers and the under-23s who are preparing for the Olympics in Tokyo. So um, if I'm given that opportunity, um, it would be my second Olympics because I, I went to the 2008 in Beijing. Um, which would be amazing experience, obviously. Uh, I think, um, you know, you, 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 this has probably given me a little bit of time to put something back into the game and, and, and refocus and try and understand what I would like to do. I'm, I'm 53 this year. And, and, and in my heart, I, like I said to you a moment ago, I, would, I think I would like having had the experience under such good coaches as a player and as a coach myself, I think I would like a little tip at being a head coach. And if the call was to come from Celtic to be part of uh, <laughs> the backroom team there, would that be too tough to turn down? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I've, always, I've, I've said to my wife, I said, there's one place that um, I, I will never, ever turn down. Uh, and that would be a dream of going back to Celtic. And, uh, and I think you'd actually appreciate it even more. Um, the second time around um, and, and you know if that comes along that opportunity magnificent um, but let's wait and see how it unfolds over the next few weeks I, I, I certainly won't want, want, want it to be at um, you know me pushing it at the result of someone else losing their job but if if ever there was a an invite to come back to Celtic and work I'd definitely take it. Jonathan I can't thank you enough for joining us I hope you enjoyed the the quick chat about your uh, wee trip down memory lane I've really enjoyed it. Um, appreciate you getting in touch with me and and uh, JP as well. It's, you know, it's it's fond looking back on successful times, and and uh, let's hope that um, Celtic can put it right in the next few weeks and move forward.